Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Jim Tucker is the director of the UVA Division of Perceptual Studies, where he researches children's reports of past life memories. Yes, I said past life memories, as in reincarnation. He's the author of Life Before Life and the New York Times bestseller, Return to Life. And his latest book is titled Before, Children's Memories of Previous Lives. And you might be familiar because he was most recently profiled in the Netflix docuseries, Surviving Death. Jim, welcome. Good to be here. So your work is fascinating. You work alongside Dr. Bruce Grayson, who we've also had on this show. Together, you're part of the Division of Perceptual Studies at UVA. You both appear in the Netflix series, Surviving Death, which is fascinating. And Bruce focuses on near-death experiences and NDEs, and you focus on past life memories. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you got started studying past life memories? Sure. Well, the work actually started long before I got involved. So Ian Stevenson was chair of the Department of Psychiatry here at UVA back in, well, he started in 1957, but back in the 60s, he got interested in this phenomenon of young children from various parts of the world who would say that they remembered a past life. And, and he started investigating these cases and got more and more involved with him, stepped down as chair and started this research division, the Division of Perceptual Studies has now been going on for over 50 years. Um, so I got involved in the late 90s. I trained at UVA in psychiatry and child psychiatry. Never met Ian during that time. Heard a little bit about him, not really that much. He was doing his own thing at that point. And went into private practice for nine years, then became more intrigued by questions of things like life after death and happened to be reading one of Ian's books when my wife and I saw in the local newspaper that they were starting a new study on near-death experiences. Called them up to see if they needed any help interviewing patients for the study and they said maybe. So that kind of got my foot in the door. I actually never participated in that study but I did get connected with the division and then eventually took a trip to Asia to study these cases and kind of one thing led to another. In the year 2000, I gave up my private practice and just came on full-time at UVA. Wow. So can you walk us through what your work looks like and what criteria you look for, what questions you ask to decipher if uh, it's just a child's imagination running wild or there's a real past life memory? And I guess at the same time, too, if you could set the stage, define a past life memory for us. Yeah, so it's typically a very young child. Uh, the average age when a child starts talking about a past life is 35 months. So usually it's around their third birthday. They start coming out with these things. And as they get better verbal skills, of course, they can come out with more. But then usually by the school age, they've stopped talking about it. But it, it's a very young child who will say things like, in my last life I did blah, 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 or my previous family did such and such. 70% of them will or 75 percent of them will talk about how they died in the last life in those cases 70 percent of them are through some sort of unnatural means murder suicide combat accidents so that certainly seems to be something that is 
a significant part of this phenomenon. And if you accept the cases, it suggests that it's a traumatic memory that has contributed to them, the memories coming through intact. But the big question for us, as far as, like you say, is a very good question. Is it just fantasy or is it an actual memory? The question is, can the child's statements be verified? The, the, what the child describes, does it match somebody who lived and died in the past? If so, could the child have gotten that information through some sort of ordinary means? And I mean, we hear from parents all the time. We, we heard from over 100 of them last year. The thing is, to be able to verify it, the child has to recall not just details, but the right details that would allow tracing. So typically names uh, of either people or places. Otherwise, it's extremely difficult. So most of the cases, especially that we hear from here in the U.S., where I think parents are more likely to contact us because it's so weird that their child has said anything. So we hear a lot of quote-unquote, weak cases, weak as far as not being able to verify them. But then we get the ones where the child does recall the right details. And in that case, we've often been able to trace it back to somebody who lived and died. Although they tend to be very recent cases, like the average interval is only four and a half years. But there are some that are decades. So there's a well-known case where a child remembered being a World War II pilot. Uh, so, you know, that was... 50 years ago plus. And with ones like that, I mean, I, I think we can be pretty certain the child didn't hear about this kind of random person, and yet they have a lot of memories. Can you actually share, I, I watched the, the docuseries, and that's the third James you're referencing. Can you just share, for those who didn't watch, the, briefly the story of the third James? Because it's sure. pretty powerful. Yeah, so... James Leininger is this little boy who, around the time of his second birthday, started having horrible nightmares multiple times a week in which he'd be kicking his legs up in the air and screaming, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. And then during the day, a few times his parents were able to talk with him about this material while he was awake. Let me just say, in these cases, often the child has to be in the right frame of mind to talk about these things. So there are exceptions, but it's not like any time the parents can just sit down and say, tell us what you remember. It's usually during relaxed times, sometimes after a bath or during a car ride. So anyway, they had a few conversations with him, and he said how his he had been a pilot, his plane had been shot down by the Japanese, and described how it was shot down, got hit in the engine, crashed in the water, quickly sank. And he said that his plane flew off of a boat. And when his parents asked him the name, he said Natoma. And it turns out there was a USS Natoma Bay, which was this escort ship in, stationed in the Pacific during World War II. And they also asked him what his name was, and he would always just say either me or James, which they didn't make much of. And they asked him who else was there, and, and he said Jack Larson. Well, eventually his father, who was appalled by the idea of reincarnation, started looking into this just to show that there's nothing to it, and eventually learned that there was something to it. So the other piece of it, well, a couple of pieces, one, he pointed out a picture of Iwo Jima one day and said that's where he had been shot, his plane had been shot down. And he also, you mentioned the third James, he would always draw these pictures of planes or battle scenes and he'd always sign them James 3. 
And when they would ask him about that, he would say, I'm James III, I'm the third James. So eventually, when he was four and a half, his father went to a Natoma Bay reunion and learned that, in fact, there was a Jack Larson on the ship. He visited this Jack Larson, found out that he was even, he was on the ship during the Iwo Jima operation. And he also learned that there was only one pilot from the Natoma Bay that was killed during the Iwo Jima operation. Is this uh, man named James Houston. And James Houston was a junior, which would make James Leininger the third James. And the details all matched up. The, the, the details he gave for the crash matched perfectly with what happened with, with Houston's flight. Again, he was the one pilot from the Natoma Bay killed there. And on, on the day that he was killed, that the we got a picture of the different pilots in the air, and the one next to his was Jack Larson. So along with that, you know, I mentioned the nightmares. There was a lot of emotion that James had about these things, and that's um, not unusual in our cases. With his, also in his play, he would constantly take his toy airplanes and crash them into the family's coffee table and, and say, airplane crash on fire. And it, it, that, that's what, in child's, children's mental health, we call post-traumatic play, where if a kid has been through trauma, they reenact it in their play. So that was quite an impressive case, and I think fairly impossible to discount through some sort of ordinary explanation. Yeah, you get chills listening. We have a four-year-old, and there's no way our four-year-old could come up. I love her. She's she's a brilliant four-year-old, like every parent would say, but no way, that that, that level of, of detail. So... How many, you studied about 100 cases last year. In total, how many cases have you worked with? Well, we heard from 100 families last year. We, we didn't do full investigations with those. But we have done full investigations with 2,500 cases over the years. And in recent years, what we've done is focus on the American cases. So uh, what does the scientific community say about past life memories well not a lot (laughs) but you never know who's open to it but you know it it goes so against the reigning paradigm of of, physicalism that consciousness is just a a byproduct of of our brains basically and that it ends when the brain dies it goes so much against that that many people are unwilling to even consider the cases Um, so What's your take? You know, I mentioned my daughter. I'll bring her up again. So she's four. Like a year and a half ago, she, she, she said, I have a brother. And I was like, oh, really? And I remember telling our mutual friend, Dr. Roxana Navavar this. And she was like, oh, did you really pry there? And I said, no. And then she brought up you and your work in past life memories. And in retrospect, I'm like, huh, maybe I should have really leaned into this and asked more. And then she let it go and she's fine and doesn't. And so my bigger question is, do you believe that we all have past lives or just some of us? And is there, with regards to, to children, is there this like critical age where they're most ripe to go deeper and have a discussion about these memories? And then at a certain age, they just fade. So do we all have do are we all reincarnated? Do we all have these memories and then they just fade? And you get lucky, or not you lucky, but 
you get the because when you mention where my head goes and you talk about people dying in sort of a more of a horrific sudden way there's there's trauma there and, and and it's the trauma that keeps the story alive in the kids it is more pronounced versus i died at home peacefully sleep in my 90s so what's your general take on all of that that is a big yeah. number of questions in there yeah. but <laughs> well i think first of all I don't necessarily recommend that parents do go deep with it. I mean, it is not often a pleasant thing to recall a past life. I mean, a lot of these children, it's very difficult for them and can be difficult for the parents too because they see the child suffering. Now, again, usually it all fades by the time they're six or seven, so it's not like they're permanently scarred. But if if a child's not remembering a traumatic past life, there's you know, no need to get them to remember it. I think as far as the larger question, do we all have past lives and maybe just some of us verbalize them? We don't have evidence that everyone has past lives. My own opinion, and it's only that, is that um, there's this consciousness piece that continues, but whether it comes back here or not, is may well vary from individual to individual and with these cases it often is you might say unfinished business so the previous person either died violently or died young and then so they kind of continued on here we have done psychological testing with some of the children to see what it is about them why are they doing this they don't show any psychiatric disturbance the one thing that comes out of the testing is they tend to be very bright and very verbal so it may well be that there are other children who have similar images, but by the time they get where they can really verbalize them, the images have faded. Whereas with these kids, they start talking about it and it kind of firms it up in their minds and then kind of becomes a full case. So that may well happen, but, but there's not evidence that it's universal by any means. Well, when you mentioned being universal, something else in the docu-series that was interesting were a country's cultural or religious beliefs and, and the role they, they play in this. So can you talk about America and some of the other countries you studied? Yeah, so Ian Stevenson started studying cases where he could find them, which was in cultures with the belief in reincarnation, because there, if a child gave a lot of details of a past life, the family would tell people, word would spread, it might be in the newspaper, but one of Ian's with associates would learn about it, and then you know he would study the case. Whereas here, most families, frankly, are kind of embarrassed by what their children say, and they may not tell anyone. In fact, they'll email us and say, I want this to be strictly confidential. The grandparents may not know, neighbors don't know. So we're always concerned that are there cultural factors that have played into it? the parents, especially if it involves a deceased family member, have the parents they think they believe in reincarnation. They wish that their loved one has returned. So do they then kind of overinterpret things that the child says? Here, that's not an option. I mean, most of the families say they had no belief in reincarnation before their child started talking about a past life. And some of them are quite upset when the child starts talking about a past life. So, I mean, that's one reason to focus on American cases. The potential cultural factors that are clouding the water, perhaps in some of the Asian ones, are just not an issue here. Well, I, I would think with 
the docu-series, you're going to see more and more cases. I think there, there was one I just, we read about recently that came out post-docu-series, and if, and if you could elaborate in some of the details, there was one about someone in 9-11. Could, could you share that one? Well, I haven't studied, well, I did study one from 9-11, but that's a different one than you're talking about. But we have gotten sporadic reports about 9-11. I'm always a little concerned about either ones involving a famous person or a famous event because it is in the culture and especially around 9-11 anniversaries where people put the TV shows, the footage again and so forth. And you can imagine that some children might be more sort of susceptible to thinking they remember those things. Now, that being said, it doesn't invalidate any 9-11 case, but we would look for particular identifying details. I mean, just saying I was on the 50th floor and then a plane crashed in or whatever. I mean, it may well be a legitimate memory, but we can't really validate it. But if a child recalls names or, or details, then we would explore that like we would any other case. What was your take on the, the recent one in the news? I know you haven't studied it, but... Um, to be honest, I don't know enough to even have an opinion about okay. it. So going back to the, the trauma, do you think that most of these memories, and we touched on this a little bit, but that, that, that because the memories are, are so painful that they fade at that age, the children almost need to su suppress it. Because from what it sounds, what you described with James, that, that, that that's... It's sad. There's some real trauma there. And do children need to suppress it? And, and would that be an explanation? Maybe more kids have past life memories, but it's too painful and they kind of bury it. Well, it could be, but all children lose their memories of early childhood around the age of five or six. So with your daughter, if there is a neighbor or family, uh, extended family member that she definitely knew when she was two, I mean, it was in long term memory. But if that person moves away or something happens to them, by the time she's going to school, she, she will likely have no memory of them. Uh, and, you know, the brain is undergoing tremendous changes during that time. And, I mean, Freud called it the repression barrier. But it's, it's unquestioned that certainly kids do lose those memories. So it makes sense that they would lose memories of a past life as well. Now, of course, there are exceptions to both of those, including trauma. There are things that do stick in the mind that persist from early childhood and in these cases seems to persist from past life. But as much as it can be forgotten, all to the good. I mean, you mentioned James and, and unfortunately he's now a young adult and doing fine overall, but he still has a memory of the sense of being about to die. And that's a tough thing to carry with you. It is tough, and I'm curious, of all the cases you've studied, what are these kids who are now adults like? Do they have similar tastes or interests? Are they still haunted? Have they evolved? What are they, are you tracking them through adulthood? Well, we're actually doing a study like that right now of where we have contacted adults who we originally studied as children and we haven't analyzed the data yet, but they, I mean, overall, they're doing fine. But as far as, as commonalities with their past life, you know, not particularly. It's not like they have the same occupation that the previous person did or necessarily even the same interests. One thing that we have looked at is 
with our database is personality features and and we don't we started this database a long time ago and and we would do it a little differently now but there are a few personality traits that we code for and put in our database anyway to get to the point that there is at least some correlation between personality features in the previous person and the child which would suggest is not just information that has carried over but there's a sort of a larger sense that has carried over as well. So if someone's listening, who's an adult, I don't think I have any toddler listeners except <laughs> my daughter every once in a while. Is there a way to potentially tap in to our past life memories, whether it's hypnosis or meditation or do recurring dreams mean anything or is the window closed and that's it? Well, it's a little hard to answer. I mean, the you know hypnotic regression. I mean, we are skeptical of it. In fact, we have a column by Ian Stevenson about it on our website because hypnosis is a very unreliable tool for memories, even for this life. It can be you can get some amazing hits of people recalling license plate numbers from crime scenes or whatever, but you get a lot of times where the mind just fills in the blanks, and then it's very hard for a person to tell if it's an actual memory or not. Meditation, I mean, there are certainly people who do report memories of past lives that come through during meditation. Whether they are verified or even verifiable is kind of a different question. But there's also the question of whether we should try to delve into that. For some of us, I mean, there are enough things we wish we had done differently in one life. There are little things, we stupid things we said or whatever. I mean, you can perseverate about your current life without having multiple other lives to, to go regret for. No, enough um, going on in 2021, I don't want to bring back. Yeah, really. <laughs> now, you also mentioned recurring dreams, and we have gotten some reports where the person reported starting in early childhood, they did have a recurring traumatic dream, I mean, where they dreamed it dozens of times or scores of times, and even though we haven't been able to verify those, I have actually found them kind of impressive at times. So there was one that certainly seemed to be recalling a tsunami. And, and this is back like in the 50s or 60s where it's not like you saw a lot of footage of tsunamis. And, and you know, very specific kinds of memories of being there that, that actually was quite impressive. It's a completely unverifiable case, but I thought there might well be something to it. So these people do have recurrent dreams over and over again about a specific event that does not seem fantastical, but you know, seems like a memory. I would take that seriously. What about phobias? Well, that's a good question. I mean, certainly in our cases, we see plenty of phobias. So in the ones where the, the person died by unnatural means, 35% of those kids do show an intense fear toward the motive. So like if the previous person drowned and the child you know, hates getting in water, that kind of thing. But to turn it the other way, how what percentage of phobias come from past lives? You know, we have no idea. And I wouldn't assume that it's a significant percentage. It could be. But typically, if a trauma has produced a, a fear, typically you remember the trauma. So, you know, to sort of unexplained phobias, I don't discount it, but I don't assume that the past life connection either. So how do you think about karma? Well, I don't think about it a lot. Truth. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, I mean, karma can be a very subtle concept that I'm 
I don't have particular expertise, but in, in sort of just kind of gross karmic retribution kind of thing, we don't see that in our cases where if the previous person hacked someone to death Right. And they get born with defects. If anything, it's the reverse, where if, if a child died with physical trauma, then, I mean, if the previous person died with physical trauma, the child can actually be born with birthmarks or birth defects. But I think in a more subtle sense, our actions, I mean, they have an effect in this life, right? I mean, there, there is a carryover, and, and I, if, if, there is, if there are multiple lives, I think there both our actions as well as our what we bring to it consciously or emotionally or whatever, you know, I do think can have some effect. So it would make sense to me there could be some carryover. So of all the cases, has there been one that's really stood out or perhaps changed your perspective on future research or how you think about your work? That was sort of like a game changer, if you will, for you. Well, I think the closest would probably be James Leininger, actually, because now, I mean, there are a lot of very strong cases that Ian Stevenson studied. But, you know, when you study it yourself, it makes a difference. And often with our cases, you hear the first report, it sounds really interesting. And then as you delve into it, it may well be interesting. But you also see the potential weaknesses as well as the strengths. With James's case, the more I looked into it, the stronger it got, because I realized that there was more documentation of the things he had said before anyone had any idea who this pilot was. And again, it, you add it all together, it gets really hard to dismiss. So, you know, still with each case, I enter it with very much an open mind. I mean, is this fantasy, if it is a past life memory, how good is the evidence for that? And that hasn't changed, but, you know, I'm now, um, I see that there are cases where the evidence can be really strong. I mean, I think beyond a reasonable doubt. So there you go. How has your perspective changed on a personal level? What do you believe in? Well, I think the longer I'm in this, that the more I have become convinced that there is more than just the physical world, that there is this element of consciousness that is not only separate from it, but really creates it. I mean, I think ultimately the, not to get into the quantum physics of it too much, but consciousness is the core and, and the core of reality that the physical world grows out of, not the other way around. And so in our cases, there are examples of how sort of consciousness is primary because it, it looks like when the body died, the brain died physically, there's nothing the consciousness continued on and, and then you know got connected with a new life and you know, what is your so most of us probably have not had a past life memory or maybe we did and we just it's gone and so most of our listeners are saying it probably not applicable to me but they're intrigued and what is your hope with your work for the everyday person who you know is going to read your book before they watch the docu series or listening to this podcast? Like, what's the takeaway you want for hu humanity right now? Well, I think the cases do apply to all of us. No, most of us don't have memories of a past life, but it's what these cases say about us, and what they indicate is that there is this 
larger part of us that there is you can call it spiritual or, or you, you say consciousness or whatever but there is we are not just sort of physical beings trapped in a random universe for a few decades and then we're gone and that's it that i hope that there is this is kind of a hopeful message for people and there are also i mean all of us at one point or another have losses and grieve and hopefully it can be of some comfort to know that again that's not the whole story that there's a larger picture there so through your work have you ever you know gone back and thought about your childhood mm-hmm. and wow what was my childhood like and was there something there did i have an experience or did i know someone well, what was your childhood like and how did it impact all this well it was kind of an ordinary childhood. I'm an identical twin. That's a little bit out of the ordinary, but just growing up in small town, North Carolina, dad was a dentist, mom was a housewife, and there was nothing to his past lives, that's for sure. And when we were sitting in church at Southern Baptist Church, they weren't talking about reincarnation. And I frankly never gave it any thought, really, even into, I mean, even when I got involved in this work, I was intrigued by sort of a a serious-minded approach to the question of life after death. I wasn't particularly drawn to reincarnation, but so anyway, the, you there was nothing in my childhood that would have predicted my interest in this. But again, I think we all have an interest in the larger questions of, of life and perhaps things uh, life after death. So. As I mentioned, Bruce has been on the show and he studies NDEs and, and you study past life memories. Where's the intersect? Has there ever been an intersection in terms of a case? Well, there's an intersection in the sense that 20% of our cases, the child will talk about memories between lives. And so things that happened after. Tell us more. Case. Well, <laughs> it, it very, and actually we wrote a paper on this that included comparing it to NDE reports. It, it can vary quite a bit. Some of the kids will talk about sort of hanging around the previous family or hanging around where the previous person died. Uh, some of them will describe the previous funeral and including at times verifiable details. Some will describe sort of a very near-death experience kind of thing of floating in the air after they died, sometimes seeing other spiritual beings, sometimes going to another realm. And then some will also talk about coming back, either choosing their next parents or being shown their next parents, guided to them, sometimes again with verifiable details. So there are certain aspects of near-death experiences that we don't necessarily hear from these kids. Like in near-death experiences, often people feel that their their thinking becomes clearer than ever in various cognitive aspects. But the transcendental aspect is very similar. So where is the science research going right now in terms of your work and the division? What, what, do you, what are you looking at, which you know, is, is not a full-blown documented study yet? What's interesting? Where are you? What are you paying attention to? That you... Well, one, again, is looking at, at the adults and seeing how people turn out. We're interviewing both the subject of the case as well as their parents, getting them to complete uh, rating skills and so forth. We also are continuing to study cases because, you know, we've studied a lot of cases, but if we had, say, 50 American cases as strong as James Leininger's, I don't think people could ignore that. 
So I do think it's important to continue to build up the evidence base. We are also, with our database, I mean, we code all the cases on 200 variables and can look at various features of them. One paper we recently published in a fairly controversial area relates to gender nonconformity. So in the cases, it's only about 10% of cases where a child talks about a past life as a member of a different sex. But in those cases, 80% of the children show gender nonconformity. So just sort of to define the term, in, in the general population, most kids show sort of stereotypical behaviors as far as boys prefer to play with trucks and girls with dolls or whatever. And, and there's a lot of discussion about why that is the case. But about 3% of, of young boys and 5% of, of girls will show gender nonconformity where their behavior is, is more typically associated with a different sex. And again, in, in these cases, it's 80%. So what that would suggest is that there can be carryover in a variety of ways that may influence children as they develop. And so for anyone listening who maybe has had an interesting discussion with their toddler, any advice for, for a parent who thinks their child may have had a, a past life memory? Yeah, and we do, I will say, we have an advice um, piece on our website if people want to learn more. But what we do, we encourage the parents to be open to what their child is saying, but not necessarily to force it by any means. One, because that can be upsetting to the child. But two, it can also lead them to just start making stuff up. And from our standpoint, we would want it to be kind of as clean as possible. We encourage the parents to take notes. That's very helpful for us, certainly. And when the child is in the mood to talk about it and is talking about it, then kind of keeping open-ended questions, oh, what else do you remember? Or, you know, that must have been hard or whatever, and, and just letting them talk. You know, it's awfully tempting at times to ask specific questions, and I think that's okay as long as people don't push it too much. So he asks, oh, well, where did that happen? Or, and what was your name then? I mean, those, again, are, are details that are useful for us. And if you could go back when you first started doing this work and give yourself advice, what advice would that be? Well, I don't know that I would necessarily change anything we're doing. Certainly, focusing on the American cases, I think, made a lot of sense, and maybe we should have done a little sooner, but it's hard to find them. Fortunately, with the internet, now families find us. So you know, maybe we should have publicized this more, actually, so that the word would get out and parents would contact us more. But we're doing more of that now. And again, we're hearing from a lot of families about these cases. It, it seems that it's far more common here than, than we've ever known before. So how common, I, I, I know the, da the, the data is not there yet, but it, how common do you, what do you think the possibility is in terms of how common this is? Well, we did a sort of a pilot study where there's a survey center here where they do a survey of not just Charlottesville, but five surrounding counties. And you can add questions onto their overall survey. So anyway, we, as a preliminary kind of thing, we asked parents if they had a child who remembered a past life. And 6% of them said that they did, which was so much higher than I was expecting that I don't trust the number. So at some point, what we'd like to do is a full nationwide survey and really clarify, make sure what, that what they're calling a past life memory is what we would call a past life memory and just try to get a better handle on just how common this phenomenon is. How far away are you from 
a type of survey? Well, it's just a matter of kind of having the funding and the time to do it. It, it wouldn't be a huge undertaking, but it'd be a significant undertaking. Wow. Well, fascinating work. I, I agree. There is something greater out there. And I, and I think that the work you do around consciousness is very interesting. And I think in a world where many are, are lacking meaning, purpose, and significance and, and looking for something bigger than themselves in 2021, I, I, I think, I think the, and, and those also experiencing grief, I, I think they'll enjoy the book before. The, the, the anecdotes you share are just mind-blowing and give you tingles. Well, I appreciate it. I, I hope people do enjoy it. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me.